Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning and welcome as we worship on the second Sunday uh, of Advent. Many years ago, I lived in London uh, for a year, and one of the things I used to love to do, at least once a week, I would go run in Hyde Park. Beautiful place, lots of interesting things to see and take in. But one of the interesting places, if you've been there, is when you get to the far corner and you get to what's called Speaker's Corner. And it has, for hundreds of years, been a place where anybody that wants to put out an idea can get their soapbox, get up, and go to town on it. And you'll see all kinds of things. I used to enjoy when I get to that part of the park because you didn't know what you were going to see. I remember one of the first days that I went by it, there was this wild looking man up on one of the soap boxes. He looked like he lived in the park. He was uh, unkept in terms of hygiene. He had tattered clothes. I have no, I can't remember what he was, what he was yelling about or what he was doing. And everybody's walking by him except for maybe a few of the tourists who were kind of taking pictures and doing things over there. And I think, I think about that because I think about John the Baptist today in our gospel lesson and thinking about him out in the wilderness and wondering whether people were really listening to him. How much were they really listening? Because like this other guy, he, he appears as an outsider. He's dressed in a different kind of way. I mean, imagine the scene, right? Just think about the scene for a minute. Leather girdle, camel hair, guys eating locusts, living on the land out in the hot desert. And our people are going to listen to him. What are they doing with that? And if so, why? Are we going to listen to him? These are some of the things I want to I look at today as we kind of focus in the second week of Advent um, on John the Baptist. And I think the, the beginning place maybe is just a second to think about a little bit of, of context. It had been hundreds of years that this echoing message took place amongst the Jewish people that there was a king coming. And it was part of this message that was ultimately a message of hope and uh, forgiveness and healing for people who had taken lots of wounds during their time in exile. But all through all this time, there was this understanding, this message that the king is coming, that someday the king is coming. He's one who's going to rescue and he's going to comfort. And now John the Baptist is saying that's happening. That's going on. And this along with the fact that part of the scripture was, and, and the understanding of what had been prophesied, was that there would be one who would come before the king, before the Messiah, who would put out this message. And there was a, a belief and understanding that Elijah was going to come and do these things. And then we get, uh, we get to this place where before Jesus' ministry starts, we get Gabriel coming down and visiting at this priest at the temple, Zechariah. And he says to Zechariah, you and your elderly wife, Elizabeth, are going to have a child and you're to name him John. And part of the, what gets said is he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. This idea that this is the Elijah, the one in the spirit of Elijah that's coming to say all this that's happened. And we know that this is like a very different kind of situation. You get the famous story that we call in the church, the visitation. Whenever Mary, she's heard that her relative Elizabeth is pregnant in her old age and she's going to go help her and see her and do whatever travels to her. And the first time they meet, um, Mary's blown away. Or Elizabeth is blown away by the fact that the child she's carrying leaps inside of her her womb, she says, and this moment. We don't know whether or not Jesus uh, and John 
spend any time together when they were children or what have you, but we certainly know they have this relationship and this connection. But not everybody knows this. Like, and not everybody knows this at the time that John the Baptist is out in the wilderness. So I come back again to that question. Do people really listen to him? What do they do with all this? And of course, the answer is yes. You get John the Baptist in all four of the Gospels. All four of the Gospels present him as somebody who's very effective, successful, popular. You get all these different kinds of messages around that. The first century Jewish historian Josephus says about him, he says, when others too joined the crowds about him because they were aroused to the highest degree by his sermons, Herod became alarmed. So you get the historian commenting on how popular he'd gotten. He'd gotten so popular that Herod was concerned about him. And as you know, the rest of the story, as we tell about John's life, that's how he met his end with Herod cutting his head off. He was very popular. And then even beyond that, when Jesus's ministry gets going and, and gets all this popularity, Herod's first comments back are, goodness me, is this, is this guy back to life again? Is this John the Baptist again, come back to life? So we get, again, how popular he was. And there are other ways we see how popular he was too, because if you go read the book of Acts, just looking to hear about John the Baptist, you'll see that there are at least a couple occasions where we encounter disciples of John the Baptist who ultimately become Christians. But he's effective, he's got his following, he's got people that he's taught and these disciples. Finally, I would say that the other way you get how popular he was, that even these religious leaders that he, that he barks at today are all coming out to see him, to be involved in it, you know, and he has to say, you brood of vipers and all of that. So he's very popular, he's very effective in what he's doing. And I think the question may turn then, it was like, how did he get that much traction? Part of it is, I think, people got a sense that God was with him. And um, they were curious. And they went out to see him, as some of the, the saints writing about this in the first few centuries said. They were curious to go see, what is, this, what is this person doing all this preaching out on the skirts of town? And what's going on with all of that? And of course, along with that, we know it had been something like 400 years since Israel had had a prophet. So maybe it's also like, oh, we, got, we have a prophet on the scene now, or a potential prophet. And they want to go check out this scene out. And he's got all these kind of attributes of a prophet. Like he's the one who, he doesn't care. He's willing to, to speak to power. Like he is willing to, um, whatever he sees evil, he calls it out. It doesn't matter whether it's the religious leaders or later when he actually calls it out to Herod. Like that, uh-uh. He's not letting any of that get by. He's willing to go into those places. And along with that, he's calling people to a very direct repentance. He's saying, repent and be baptized. And people are listening. And I think it's a reminder to us that sometimes people who may be very different than us, dressed very different, living a very different life, doing all kinds of things that God uses. I mean, maybe even more we should pay attention sometimes of, of the person on the fringe that has a message. Maybe we should be listening to that. I think about, um, I've, I've said before in sermons that pre-COVID at least, I used to go up to a monastery uh, once a year. I'm going to get back soon. But the people there, those monks, have given me a lot of wonderful godly counsel that I really feel like God used them as an instrument to, to help me speak to me and give me things I needed to hear. But they're unusual. I mean, they just are. I mean, I think about this. I mean, not, not only do they wear 
their garb all day long. But these guys are up in the chapel at 4.30 every morning. They pray seven times a day. I mean, they're like, I don't know how they do it. Like, I've done the math on their schedule. If they don't, if they don't take a nap in the afternoon, they wouldn't make it. Because I think the way their schedule works, they do Compline doesn't wrap up to like 9, and they got to be up again at 3.30. And you can do that for a little while. I usually do it one day when I'm there, and I'm worn out. They do this all the time. But again, it doesn't matter that they're, they have an unusual lifestyle. They dress different. They, they're into different things. You know, we, we talk to them on the breaks, um, and it's like, what are you up to now? And they're like, it's hard to even relate to them. But I really feel like they connect, and they have messages oftentimes for God, from God that way. This is, uh, John the Baptist is this strange guy out there, but I think he has this message for God's people, which is he's saying, repent and be baptized. And we turn and look at him then and we want it. What is his, what is the depth of his message? What is he really saying? He's saying this King we've been talking about, this King that's been echoing through all these, all these hundreds of years, he's arrived or he's imminent. And you can stop and think about all the arrangements that would get made when a king is coming. Or maybe you stop and think about just if a president was coming. I had a friend of mine in the Park Cities who had uh, an active sitting president come to her house for uh, a dinner. And I was there the week before, and it was fascinating just to hear all the preparations going on. Secret Service coming through with the dogs and all the interviews and all the arrangements and all the stuff that has to get done. But imagine that was happening to you, that the president's coming to your house. Apart from all the security stuff, what would you do? How much cleaning? You know, like all the stuff. This is the king of the universe is coming, kind of an image. And John is saying, get ready. Get ready. Everybody get ready. Back then in this time, whenever the king was coming and this kind of power, there weren't that many roads but the roads would have been prepared. They would have gone and fixed potholes and made things straight and actually prepared the roads for the king to go down them. He's saying, do that, you know, and what does that mean? St. Jerome writing early on, one of the great translators in the church, he said, look, that's, that's saying, get your hearts ready because that's the place where God's going to walk. He's going to be in our hearts. And this message of calling us to repent um, is something that we need to pause on, as we talked about last week, as part of the season of Advent. And it's interesting that uh, John the Baptist is going to say repent. Jesus is later going to say repent. And there's not a lot of talk about what it means. And so people take from that, scholars take from that, well, it must mean what the Jewish understanding of repentance was at the time because nobody had to interject a different meaning to it. And it won't surprise you to learn that their meaning of repentance is the same as we have now. Ultimately, about turning away from things that we know are evil and turning to God is the, is the act of repentance, is this turning. And it's not just that. It's not just some intellectual piece that we do. It's something that will affect the way we act. And it'll affect the fruits that are seen in our lives with what we do. That's what he's calling us to. That's part of what our season is. Along with that, there's one more bit of his message that we have to say something about because he also says, to be baptized. And we pause there to ask, well, what is this? We've all been baptized in here, but what is John the Baptist doing that day and saying to be baptized? Well, we get that his baptism is different than the baptism that Jesus gives. And we get that in our passage because he's coming later, John says, and he's going to baptize with fire and with the Holy Spirit. 
And that's more of what we understand that was given ultimately to the church and the baptism that we've been called into. So what is John's baptism? Some people say, some of the scholars say, what well, was this one-time baptism to just do away with sin then? Maybe that's what it is. Or some people say, look, if you know the procedures at the time to bring a pagan into the Jewish faith, it involved a, a form of baptism. So maybe what he's saying is, look, all of you have gotten, John the Baptist saying, all of you have gotten so far off the track that you're like pagans. Let's bring you back. Let's get you baptized. Others have said, look, look at the deep symbolism of it because it's, maybe it's a new exodus. We think about how God's people crossed the Jordan River into the promised land, that this was the start of a, telling all the people there, it's, this is happening, let's enter the promised land now as Jesus arrives by coming through the waters, the waters of the Jordan again and being baptized. There are all kinds of different ways that we look at this. This is the message that I think, w- the messages that we need to ponder as we continue on our Advent journey. So let me say a few things about maybe how we bring this back because it's ultimately calling us to think about what it is we need to turn from and turn more fully to God. It, I think ultimately is calling us to think about what are our acts of righteousness and justice that we're to be engaged in and to have this attitude of surrender and, and being baptized. Um, I think about how, again, if I can quote um, Josephus, he talks about uh, a little bit of a sermon that um, was recorded by John. It says, John was a good man and he exhorted the Jews to lead righteous lives, to practice justice towards their fellows and piety towards God and so doing joined in baptism. It's this turning of all this. And for us, it's, it's, it caused us to reflect on these things we're repenting from. And I think it's very, very hard for us to repent because I think we as a culture are addicted to justifying what we do, to saying, no, I wasn't wrong, wrong about that and having a quick story about what was okay because this was going on or whatever our, our justification of it is. And I know at least for me, if I look at my self-centeredness, I'll quickly see to the extent to which um, I f- have things to re- repent from the moral failures or the, way, the ways I've been a hypocrite, that self-centeredness that keeps pulling us to wanting us to be the God of our own lives and on the thrones of our own lives. It's hard to admit when you're wrong. I don't know how many of you guys have watched um, this TV show, The Kitchen Nightmares with Gordon Ramsay, but they, it's a show where these restaurants are in deep trouble and then they bring him in and um, he's gonna spend like half the show trying to convince the owner of the restaurant that you've been so busy greeting people, getting everything to look right, doing this and this, that you've neglected your food. And he'll go order about 12 things off the menu and have to just sit there and say, that's nasty. (laughs) And you know, whatever it is to get the guy to see, we're gonna have to do a redo on your food. But he spends like half, half the whole thing just trying to get him to see you've got a real problem. You've, you've done something basically wrong and you need to repent in your kitchen. That's hard for us too. We have to, we have to get to that place. One of the authors I was reading the last couple of weeks, he says, aren't we all at some level hypocrites at some level failure, moral failures. That's precisely why Jesus came to save the world from itself and to save us from ourselves. That's why the word repentance is usually connected to the phrase good news that they go together, repent and receive the good news as things we go together.
Well, in just a minute, I mean, just a few minutes, um, Robin's going to lead us in our corporate confession. But before that, I'd like to just take about a minute to maybe get us to reflect on some specific things. So I'd ask if you're game to close your eyes, and I'm just going to do a bit of an of a inventory to get us to think about some things. Think about the times when we've been self-centered and thought everything is about us. Think about the times and the ways that we have made our life about material things. Think about the ways that we have neglected Sabbath and a time of godly rest of, of spending time perceiving God. Think about the times when we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. Think about the times that we've been calloused towards our relationship with God. They say that time equals intimacy in relationships when we haven't made any time. Think about the times we've engaged in things that have pulled us from knowing that we're the beloved child of God. The times we've engaged in things that have pulled us from God, from each other, and from our true selves. Lord God, as we continue on our journey in Advent, give us grace and strength to turn from these things and turn towards you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.